0: Listener production.
1: We still have these old mental models that sort of say the boss is supposed to know the answers. If you do something wrong, you'll get punished. But the best way to experience psychological safety is to start focusing more on others and be curious about what they bring because then you're going to be a natural psychological safety creator for others.
0: I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. Have you ever sat in a meeting bursting with a great idea and chosen not to speak about it? Have you ever been with your manager and not shared your recent mistakes for fear of losing your bonus or even your job? Have you ever been in a moment where you think the team is going down the wrong track and you just don't share or say anything? If this is true for you, then you're probably experiencing an environment with a lack of psychological safety. Amy Edmondson first identified the concept of psychological safety in work teams in 1999. And since then, she has researched and observed the ingredients for better performance in the workplace. Her work is internationally recognised And as a Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, her influence has been remarkable. She is the author of three books. The most recent bestseller in 2019 is called The Fearless Organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation and growth. It's a must read for any leader and manager. We are thrilled to have Amy join us. Welcome to Fast Track, Amy. Thank you for having me. Psychological safety took the world absolutely by storm in the last decade, and the research shows that there's an exponential rise in the interest of your work on psychological safety. So before we begin, what is your definition of psychological safety?
1: I'll define it as the belief that one can speak up without fear of humiliation or punishment in any way. So it's a felt sense of permission for candor.
0: Okay. So there's discussion about radical candor and feedback in the workplace and these concepts of being able to say anything you want to say and bringing your whole self to work. And I think some people become a bit confused by this idea of trust, psychological safety, radical candor. What does it actually look and feel like in the workplace?
1: I think the best way to describe a psychologically safe work environment is one in which people are really focused on the work. They're talking about what matters. They're raising their ideas, they're raising their concerns, they're asking questions. And in, in a sense they're able to be all in. They're focused, they're they're engaged because they don't have one major part of their brain trying to size up what's okay and what isn't. They're not reading the tea leaves. They're not cautious. They're they're not tiptoeing before speaking with what's on their mind.
0: So in a meeting, for example, people would be able to say, instead of prefacing something with, oh, this might sound like a stupid question, I'm imagining in a psychological safe environment, that question or that preface wouldn't exist.
1: Absolutely. One would say, I have a question. Mm. And it's you know what's even more worrisome than this might be a stupid question, but is just not asking at all. And I'm sure your listeners, I know I have, have been in situations at work where they have a question relevant to the work itself, but they think uh, I might look stupid. Maybe I'm supposed to know that already. I'll just wait and see. You know, maybe someone will say something that will clue me in. That's a lot of wasted mental energy and it's also potentially worse than that, right? Mm. It's, It's potentially the moment passes, you end up doing your work without a full understanding of something that would have helped you do the work better.
0: Yeah, I find when I'm going into teams and working with teams that often people don't know what their teammates actually do for a job. They might be leading large teams. Is this something you've experienced also?
1: Yes, and it's... On the one hand, it's crazy, right? I mean, this is work, right? We, sh- we need to know what what each other is doing if we're going to coordinate and collaborate and, and do a great job. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's human nature, and right? It's human nature to be self-protective. It's human nature to want to look good in the eyes of others and especially when there's a hierarchy present.
0: Yeah, and there's the threat to your actual personal safety, which is your job and your livelihood, and things like that. I want to take us back a minute, Amy, and talk about when the realisation that you had found psychological safety to be a groundbreaking
1: workplace concept.
0: Was it your hospital research? And can you share that with us?
1: Yes, it's not exactly a eureka moment, but I will say I did not set out to study psychological safety. I wasn't, I was interested in learning. I was interested, I'm, I've always been interested in the learning organisation and, and in the idea that, that People and teams and organizations have to learn from mistakes. So when I was asked to join a study of medication errors in in a couple of nearby hospitals, I thought, well, that's a great opportunity to look at learning from mistakes. In fact, that was one of the overarching ideas behind the study. And my small part of this larger study was to assess the properties of these hospital-based work units. As teams to to use a standard team diagnostic survey to get measures of the attributes of these teams, and then, meanwhile, trained medical investigators would be going in and talking to people and trying to get uh, the error rates. And so, I was going to show that better teams made fewer errors. Right? It was that simple. Unfortunately, the data didn't behave. Right? What, the, what the data suggested after six months of effort to collect these error rates, the data suggested that the better teams, according to the survey, had higher, not lower error rates. And, you know, at at first glance, that was quite disappointing, surprising, and didn't seem right. And, And so kind of a deeper reflection, I just started to think like, what is going on here? This just doesn't feel right. And I began to think about just how threatening, and especially in a hospital environment, just how threatening it is uh, to be involved with medical errors, right? It's not, this is not something anybody wakes up in the morning and thinks is going to be a part of their day. And so, you know, provided no one got seriously hurt, an awful lot of these errors are easier to hide than to report. And that occurred to me that that was possible. And so it then occurred to me that maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes maybe they're more willing and able to talk about them and so that was a kind of insight but i didn't have a name for it i didn't have a even at that moment i didn't have a way to prove that it was true it actually took a fair amount of work and some other measures and some other other activity involving a, a researcher who didn't know any of these data to go in and just see what what it's like to be an ethnographer in these different work units and What ultimately we were able to show was that Mm. what I then called the interpersonal climate in these work units in the same hospital were strikingly different in their openness, just in their sense of candor and openness. So I called it in that first paper, I called it differences in interpersonal climate. And I said that it looked like it created differences in reporting behavior, which I categorized as a learning behavior. So that was a, an accident, you know, a kind of a discovery, but it wasn't a very solid idea until I went out to study it on purpose the next time. So I found, I went into a manufacturing company in the U.S. and got the opportunity to study 50 teams in all different kinds of work, manufacturing, product development, sales, management, you name it. And at this point, I did enough interviews to get the right language to come up with a better measure, a real measure, a seven item measure of this interpersonal climate that I still hadn't named. And the items are things like if you make a mistake on this team, it's held against you or it's easy to ask for help when you don't know what to do. Things like that. Very ordinary uh, things that people readily understand or readily able to tell you what, you know, how how their workplace is. And there, I was able to show that there were real palpable differences in interpersonal climate, which by the end of that study, I had labeled team psychological safety, and that they were predictive of learning behaviors in those teams and team performance rated by external customers or managers of the teams. So it was a pretty good study, right? It was at this time I said, if this thing exists, it needs to differ across teams and it needs to be predictive of behaviors we care about. And performance. And and in fact, that's that was the case. And that started the paper was well published in an academic journal, and it started other people using the measure of psychological safety in a variety of other settings.
0: That's a really rich understanding of how it came to be. And I appreciate that. I'm even more curious about the name psychological safety, you know, the label. Have you done a psychological safety workshop now seems to follow organizational consultants around. I'm curious, what are you feeling about the name? Is it still relevant to the concept?
1: I think the name is relevant to the concept, but I also think it creates a lot of misconceptions. I think the initial association when you hear the term psychological safety is cozy, soft, nice, comfortable and it doesn't immediately bring up the idea of permission for candor or of of the kind of directness and ease with which we can disagree in a psychologically safe environment. I think now, you know, maybe a better term would have been interactive safety because it's not so much what's going on in my psychology as how I perceive the interaction potential here, right? Can I talk straight with you, right? Can I be myself here? So it's, it's not a terrible term, but I just think it helps give rise to a handful of misconceptions.
0: I believe people need to practice and experience a concept like psychological safety and they're likely to make some mistakes with it. But what's your recommendation if you're trying to embark on a change program of psychological safety in a team, for example, or in meetings?
1: Well, I think it's very important to first get a shared and explicit appreciation for the nature of the work that that a team does or that a company does, because like it or not, We all have, meaning those of us who think about work or who work in organizations, have mental models that are vestiges from the industrial era, right? The the mental model of good management is below conscious awareness more often than not, is the manager has the answers, right? The employee executes on those answers, right? And if I say that out loud, I know it sounds ridiculous. It's old-fashioned. It's, you know... We're in the knowledge era. We have experts on our teams who know things about coding or about finance that, you know, we don't have any expertise in at all. And it's by leveraging all that expertise we get somewhere. But we still have these old mental models that sort of say the boss is supposed to know the answers. If you do something wrong, you'll get punished. You know, when we have outmoded mental models about work and about who has the answers and who has the power, we are at risk of undervaluing psychological safety. In other words, there's no need for psychological safety. If you're the boss, you have the answers. I'm your subordinate. I have KPIs I'm supposed to deliver. And if I try hard enough, I'll be able to. That's kind of old fashioned notion, but it still runs a lot of people's thinking. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do if we get serious about excellence in what we now think of as the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. If you're going to be excellent in an uncertain, ambiguous environment, you're going to have to be talking. You're going to have to be raising questions, mistakes, uncertainties all the time. And we're going to get into them and we're going to figure them out. We're going to solve problems together. So getting everybody on the same page about the actual uncertain ever-changing, agile nature of the work is kind of step one. Because if we buy it, if we really believe that and we're explicit about it, then it's obvious why we need people's voices in the game, right? If that's not the case, you know, if we have, here's the formula, just go execute it. Why would it matter if people speak up or don't speak up? It wouldn't. So getting on the same page about the fundamental nature of the work and the challenge ahead is, is step one.
0: What's step two?
1: (laughs) I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) So so step two is, is still, even with that shared understanding, it's important to be proactive in asking people for their thoughts. And of course, that's what you're modeling right here. You're asking me questions. And the beauty of that is when you ask me a question, I promise you, I would feel very awkward sitting here silent, you know, essentially failing to answer the question. It'd be almost impossible for me to do. And I have to answer because you asked. But the the remarkable thing about many workplaces is that the genuine question is not all that frequently heard. You hear lots of leading questions or rhetorical questions, but the, the really dig in and say, what do you think about this? What other options might we consider? What are we missing? Those kinds of questions are just not as frequent as they should be, given the nature of the work.
0: Mm, Brilliant. And as someone who follows coaching psychology and is a coach, I am passionate about those open how-to questions. So it's terrific to hear you often use life and death examples. I've heard you talk about the Chilean miners and the hospitals. But what happens when we work in environments that aren't critical, like a hospital, and there isn't really enough discomfort to change? How do you create impetus to shift from silence to psychological safety, Amy?
1: Your question is right in its underlying recognition that without motivation, this won't happen. And it's also definitely the case that when you're closer to the life or death phenomena, the motivation is more more obvious, more compelling. And yet in most workplaces today, there's at least the possibility of truly motivating people to care about what we do. Whether that's the development of entertaining films for children or creation of fast-moving consumer goods or fashion or even uh, machine tools uh, for industrial customers, right? But whatever it is that your company does, if you are a leader in that company, and by leader, I mean team leader, frontline machinist, anyone, it's, it's your job to make sure you're talking about what we do in a way that is, is compelling. Like, why do it? If, if, if you don't believe it's worth doing, get out of the way. let someone else, you know, step in. so i guess what i'm trying to say is that in any organization it's possible and maybe even necessary to find the purpose, right? find the reason why what we do matters and use that. so if it's taking care of patients who are very sick, that's an easy one. Mm. but if it's delighting children and their parents, you know, at pixar that's not such a hard one either. And in well-run organizations, that purpose is close to the conversation most of the time.
0: So it's much more of an attractive thing doing psychological safety than a life or death thing, actually looking for the attraction. And I'm keen to understand about engaged employees and happy workplaces. And if psychological safety is one of those core components.
1: I think it is. And, And here's why. I think most of us want to contribute. We want to feel we're making a difference. And we're better able to make those contributions and and honestly be making a difference when we're better able to bring our full self to work, when we're better able to speak up. And so engagement and psychological safety are not the same thing, but people will feel more engaged when they are less tied up in self-protection. Because self-protection is a... A barrier to engagement. You know, if some portion of my energy is spent on, well, how do I look, and is it okay to say this around here? I'm not engaged. So the more you know, the more I can I can lower those interpersonal hurdles. The more I'm able to be engaged. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only thing. Psychological safety doesn't drive engagement; it allows engagement.
0: I love that definition. I really like that. The idea of a system. And being in a system where an organisation, for example, is considered not a great place to work. Now, we can all think of examples in the press, even in recent years of formerly star organisations that it's revealed that this is a toxic workplace. Is it possible to turn up to work in a psychologically safe way and not self-protect in an environment
1: like that? It's a great question. Uh, And I think it's important to understand, you know, we read, as you say, we've read so many stories in the press of toxic workplaces. So it's important to understand that most of them, not all of them, but most of them are pockets of toxicity and pockets of excellence. Any organization that's large enough, you know, thousands of employees, there are going to be great teams and not great teams. And sometimes I think it's important not to paint the whole organization with its most toxic you know story uh, because it's not fair. But what, what this observation implies, and I think this is true, is that some of the most powerful influences on psychological safety are the leaders in the middle. They're the team leaders, the unit managers, you know, mm. the general managers of a restaurant in a, in a large fast food chain, for example. It's not the CEO, you know, it's, it's not necessarily your immediate team leader. It's those leaders who are proximal and shaping the influence of the way it is around here. And so when you have, unknowingly or not, toxic leaders in those positions of power and influence, you have pockets of toxicity. So it becomes really important to think about providing both better selection processes and better training processes so that the people who are in a position of leading others know how to do that well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about hospitals and I know people who work in hospital teams that are just extraordinary and then in another unit can have a terrible team of gossip and not being able to speak up. So I do like this sense of understanding what we're looking for as an individual when we go to work, when we're looking for leaders to work with, when we're choosing those workplaces and for leaders subsequently to be encouraging this really open, positive environment of psychological safety.
1: Um, I love that, the point you just said about the hospitals and it can it can literally be across the hall, right? And just a completely different world um, <laughs> over there. And maybe I should just, also add, I, I am not advocating don't take care of yourself, right? I mean, I think when when people are in a toxic environment, they do have to self-protect. And I would advocate them self-protecting. And if possible, find yourself a new part of the organization to work in, or if necessary, go to another organization.
0: I love that you've said that. I think it's incredibly important because it's not such a blanket concept that you can't take responsibility for what you're awareness is allowing you to see, which is something I love about psychological safety because it does raise awareness about the environments we're in, our own responsibility and where we might be in an environment. Before we move on and into our next podcast about teams and teaming, my passion, I'm super keen to hear if there are any tips for individuals wanting to begin and maintain the psychological safety muscle for them at work. What would you recommend? What are your top tips?
1: I think my, my top tip is get curious because right? the best way to experience psychological safety is to start focusing more on others and be curious about what they bring, because then you're going to be a natural psychological safety creator for others. You're going to ask them questions. You're going to listen thoughtfully to what they have to say. So if you remind yourself every day that today is a great day to learn something new about the work, about your colleagues... You will naturally find yourself asking good questions. And when you do that, you're naturally drawing others out and just making their work experience and yours slightly better that day.
0: Amy Edmondson, what a joy to talk about psychological safety. I'm looking forward to our next podcast. Thank you so much for spending the time to explain so deeply and insightfully about your concept of psychological safety at work.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Mataloff. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.